Hi, this is Kristen Cabrera, reporter-producer from the Texas Standard. One of the coolest things about working on the show is getting to tell stories from my community, like this one I did on high school UAL Mariachi. But you know, this is Texas. You'd be hard-pressed to go a week without hearing. Dun-dun! Listen anytime to the Texas Standard, wherever you get your podcasts. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. In our last show, we celebrated Juneteenth with our friends in Houston. And now I want to share with you another part of the history of Black emancipation that can be well understood by focusing in on Texas. The Texas Newsroom, which is a consortium of public media in the state, has launched a new podcast called Sugarland. The 13th Amendment to the Constitution ended slavery in the United States, of course, but with the notable exception of forced labor for people who are incarcerated. And Sugarland tells a striking story about that history and how it has come forward today. I'm going to share episode one with you in a moment, and you'll learn more of the history there. But first, I want to introduce you to the co-host and executive producer of Sugarland, Brittany Martin. Hi, thank you for having me. Okay, so maybe the first thing you can do here to get us all queued up for this to hear episode one is just introduce the place Sugarland for a second. Um, where what is this place? Sure. So Sugarland is its own city. It's outside of Houston. I think about twenty minutes west of Houston, and it has this reputation as one of the first places that white people settled in Texas. So the father of Texas, Stephen F. Austin, he picked the Sugarland area as the place where he would presumably set up mm-hmm. his homestead. He never really got around to that. Um, but that's where the first white settlers in Texas were. And so Sugarland really prides itself on its first colony um, roots and, of course, as being the home of Imperial Sugar, which is a massive national sugar brand. And that's where it's based, Sugarland. Yeah, and the the Imperial Sugar is going to be an important part of the story we're going to hear mm-hmm. uh, in this podcast uh, because the labor associated with this came from something called convict leasing, right? Mm-hmm. Introduce convict leasing to people who have not heard of this phrase. Well, they wouldn't be alone. I had not heard of convict leasing until. Um, This cemetery, which we discussed in the podcast, was discovered in 2018, Um, even having grown up in Texas, had never heard of it. So convict leasing was a system uh, adopted across the South in the decades following the Civil War, where a lot of people, not just black men, but a lot of black men, were arrested for any number of quote unquote crimes ranging from, you know, stealing a horse or a pig, presumably stealing a horse or a pig, may not necessarily have done so. Uh, They were arrested. They were sent to Huntsville, where the prison is. And then they were leased out for their labor to private railroads, sugar farmers, cotton farmers, uh, and made to do the same work that slaves did just a few years before. So, like you said, this was, you hadn't heard of it. How did you come to this story? What made you notice the story we're about to hear? In 2018, around July of 2018, news reports started coming out of Houston saying that 
a cemetery had been discovered on land where Fort Bend Independent School District was building a new school. And they just kept finding body after body after body. Eventually, they found 95 remains. And they started finding them in February of 2018. And in July, they announced that these people were likely convicts who were part of the convict lease system. And it was then that I thought, what's convict leasing? And why is this significant? And I had never heard of it and was so surprised that I had never heard of it because it's a massive part of making Texas what it is today. And you went to school. You were educated. I was, yeah. (laughs) In Texas, no less. Mm -hmm. Um, I just wonder about you and your co-host sort of suggest this in the episode we're about to hear, um, just about the racialized nature of, of you not having heard of it. Um, as a white person in Texas. Um, yeah. Talk to me about that. Um, what, what, did, what did your race have to do with you not having heard about it, do you think? Yeah. So, I mean, at first I was just kind of, I felt some sort of shame maybe and mm. having not heard of it before. And I thought it was because I was white and because I grew up in a predominantly white part of Houston, Northeast Houston. And then we started reporting this story um, and I heard it from all kinds of people. I heard it from black people. I heard it from Hispanic people. I heard it from scholars and, you know, all kinds of people that really spanned all these demographics. And it started to sink in that, like, no one was taught this. Um, My co-host, Naomi, she said the same thing. She had never really heard of it until much later in her life. And we both went to Texas public schools. We were educated in Texas. And it's just sort of left out. And I, I guess, how did you feel about that? <laughs> you know, um, I mean, was that um, a provocation? Was that an indictment? Was that, um, what What was your reaction to your ignorance, I guess, right? Yes, yeah. all of the above. Um, it felt like, okay, well, now we absolutely have to give this story its due. You know, it wasn't enough to just say, this cemetery was found and isn't that crazy that convict leasing existed. Um, The more you look into it, the more you realize that basically all of Texas's major decisions are based on racism and anti-blackness. And once you start to see that, you can't unsee it. And Mm -hmm. it really colors how you see everything about this state and our history. And for that to not have been (laughs) like communicated to me, I feel like I was just having these aha moments over and over and over again. And of course, that made me want to tell everyone else that I knew. So, yes, um, I'm hoping that, you know, making this information more public and telling everyone we know will maybe make a change and change the way that people understand our history and the way that it's presented to students and, you know, everybody else. Well, we're going to listen to the first episode of Sugarland. And then, dear listener, at the end of that, we're going to come back and have a couple more questions for Brittany uh, to talk about what's going to come up next. That was episode one of Sugarland. You should get all eight episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And I am joined again by the co-host and executive producer, Brittany Martin. And Brittany, where is the story going from here? What, what should people be looking out for? I think it just gets better and better um, after episode one. So we tell the story of Reginald Moore's journey 
um, into activism and through the Sugarland 95 um, fight, really, mm-hmm. over what to do with their remains. So we ended the first episode. Reginald Moore was feeling really hopeful and vindicated in some way. Um, but he quickly found that not everybody agreed with his view of where things should go from there. Um, And there were a lot of competing interests um, and you sort of hear how it plays out, but we go from how the bodies were handled after that to how they've been handled since uh, they were reburied and how this history has brought us up until today and still has a huge impact on Texas. How did, when we started our conversation, you were pointing out you can't unsee the history of race once you started seeing it in Texas. Um, having now reported this, you know, eight episodes of this, um, where does that leave you? Where, where you, you hadn't heard this history before. How, how has this changed you having done eight episodes of this? I would say, I don't know. I just feel like my eyes are so much wider open. Not that I wasn't, you know, sympathetic or aware of current racial inequality in Texas. I feel that I was, but now I can really see so much more clearly how we got here. Mm. And I feel this compulsion, honestly, to tell so many more people because I feel like if they knew, they would have more grace towards people of other races. You know, like if people just knew this history, they wouldn't have these racist inclinations. That's sort of the perspective that I tend to fall back on is how would my family, who's, you know, very conservative and has been in Texas for generations and generations, how would they hear it and how would they respond to it? And so that's sort of how I approach everything. (laughs) And have you found that when you introduce new information with your conservative family than on any number of things, but particularly on stuff involving race, um, that it does change them in some way? Yeah, I think so. When I approach things from a more human and narrative perspective, something that they can really relate to and see the humanity in, um, rather than, you know, just they're watching Fox News or whatever Mm -hmm. and everybody's yelling at them, um, when you approach it as like a story, then, you know, they're human like everybody else. And they very much can come around and see how we got here and sympathize with it more. Because the sto- the power of story catches people's attention no matter what. I think so. And like you start to realize it's not just an issue. It's not just inequality as a concept. It's real situations that very real people faced. And as soon as you know the, that person's name and you hear their story... Yeah, they can start to see them as people rather than a concept. So have you shared any of your reporting on Sugarland and uh, and convict leasing with them? A little bit. I've talked to my dad about it, um, and he's so interested in just the fact that this happened and he wasn't really aware of it. Um, the fact that slavery was essentially replaced by this new system of convict leasing in Texas and how it went on for so much longer than we realized. He seems interested so far. Because yeah. that's see, it's really striking to me because of the fact that um, my when I am feeling dark, <laughs> uh, my understanding of the world is um, 
people don't know the history because they don't want to know it. And um, that when presented with this history that we don't know, um, that people repel it and say, that's a lie, that I don't trust it. And that it feels like certainly in recent years, as we've had these history wars, people are increasingly trained to say, no, that's not real. You're telling me this new history. If I've not heard it before, it must not be real. Yeah. And you're telling me you have a lived experience that's different than that. Yeah, I would say that, like, when you're not thinking about the very angry person who's showing up at a school board meeting with a sign and, you know, screaming about changing curriculum, when you're thinking about real people that you know and love um, who maybe just don't know something, there is a way, I think, to just talk to them like a person you know and love and mm. say, hey, here's something that happened. You may not know about it, but here's some more information. And I mean, yeah, so far I feel like it's possible to get through. I think another thing is rather than just sort of saying, no, that's not true. I think people really struggle to like reconcile mm. the negative history with the thing they know. Right. And that's sort of what makes people put their walls up. But you don't have to necessarily hate Sugarland just because this history happened here. Right. You can still love the place you live and understand how it became a city. There's two things, and you don't have to say it's evil to appreciate the history, and yeah. you don't have to say it's great and deny the history. You can, you can you have know, both. Yeah. And you can add the history of these 95 humans to that to the to the history you knew they can they can exist alongside it too yeah it makes it more rich i think well thank you for that dose of optimism and thank you uh for this reporting Brittany. thank you 